นมะทุรัตนตยสะแต่ในวันนี้ผมคิดว่าผมจะไปพูดถึงเรื่องราวที่เกี่ยวกับการที่เราทำงานร่วมกันที่เราทำงานร่วมกันที่เราทำงานร่วมกันที่เราทำงานร่วมกันที่เราทำงานร่วมกันที่เราทำงานร่วมกันที่เราทำงานร่วมกันที่เราทำงานร่วมกันที่เราทำงานร่วมกันที่เราทำงานร่วมกันที่เราทำงานร่วมกันที่เราทำงานร่วมกันที่เราทำงานร่วมกันที่เราทำงานร่วมกันที่เราทำงานร่วมกันที่เราทำงานร่วมกันที่เราทำงานร่วมกันที่เราทำงานร่วมกันที่เราทำงานร่วมกันที่เราทำงานร่วมกันที่เราทำงานร่วมกันที่เราทำงาน Not for holding on and for accumulating. As I've often said, we live our lives like a a person on the edge of the cliff, holding on to the edge of the this, holding on to the side of the cliff, afraid that if they let go, they're going to fall. But that reality is much more like we're a bird. And it's our holding on and our clinging that stops us from flying. That in fact, the more we let go, we don't fall. We don't go to despair. We go to uh, suffering. The more we let go, uh, the more peace and the more happiness we have. We have examples of this in ancient times. We have examples in modern times. We have examples. We have examples of people who give up their lives for good, good causes. People who give up all luxury and all security for the cause which they believe in, for good things which everyone sees as good. And we see that in fact it's these people that are able to do accomplish the most. We have an ex as a examples, for instance, Mahatma Gandhi, whose simple living was an inspiration to the people of India, and allowed him to become the leader of the Indian nation because he gave up so much luxury and so much of his attachments. We have the Buddha as a very good example. In ancient times, even before he was the Buddha, he told stories about his past lives where he had been born, born in so many different lives where he gave up everything. He gave up his kingdom. He gave up his wealth. He gave up everything he had. He gave up everything till he had to live in the forest and live off of wild fruits and and roots and uh, live in great difficulty. But it was the great difficulty that brought him this great peace and happiness. It was the having given up everything. In so many lifetimes, he was able to give up everything, including his own life. And look at us here, where we're so we're unable to give up even very small things most of the time. When we lose 
money or when we lose possessions, how distressed we become. When we lose relatives, when we lose friends, how sad and depressed and uh, disturbed within the mind we can become. And we don't realize that we've died and been born and died and been born countless times. And we've cried and we've cried and we've cried again and again and again. We don't remember any of this. Look at us, we're these thinking that all we have is this one life and all of the people around us are so real. And we don't think about the fact that they will all die. We try to put it aside and put it aside. And when the time comes, we're disturbed, incredibly distressed by nature, by what is just a part of nature, this death, death which is followed by immediate rebirth. Because the mind just keeps going and going. This universe is not based on the body where this is all we've got and we've got to hold on like a person about to fall out, about to fall over the edge of a cliff. It's based on the mind and it's like a bird, this mind is flying and we're holding on and holding on and we never fly anywhere, we never get anywhere. Weighted down and holding on to things that we can't take with us. We look at the world from a whole completely wrong wrong way of looking so we hold on when we come to practice meditation we learn to look at the world in a different way we look at the world from the point of view of the mind this is why we call meditation practice mindfulness because we're, we're no longer so concerned about the body we're now concerned about the mind and we want our mind to be strong and pure and clearly aware of everything not falling into dis distress or aversion or craving or desire The Lord Buddha said that the four foundations of mindfulness are like the pasture ground of a meditator, of someone who sees the, the dangers in, in clinging and holding on, someone who wants to become free from suffering. Just like a, uh, an animal, like a rabbit or a small bird, has its pasture ground. And if it stays in its pasture grounds, it's safe. If the rabbit stays near its hole, it can always run back to the hole. If the small bird stays in an area that's rocky and uh, with holes and with crevices, then it's safe. 
But when any one of these small creatures, mice or so on, go out into the open where they're not in their own grounds, their own feeding grounds, then they can be caught up by an eagle or they can be caught up by a larger animal, hunting animal. In the same way we practice a meditation, when we stay in the four foundations of mindfulness, stay with the body, we stay with the feelings, when we're mindful of the thinking, when everything for us is just one of the four foundations of mindfulness, then we're safe. We're safe because that's what's real. That's all that's real. All of our likes and dislikes, these are unreal. The labels we give to everything. These things are unsafe. When we give labels to things as good, as bad, as better, as worse, as me, as mine, as under my control. Even our own bodies, when we treat our body as me, as mine, this is where suffering comes from. Then they say Mara can have this, have a chance. When we leave behind the four foundations of mindfulness, Mara has a chance. What it means is that when we start to hold on to things, when we, the practice of meditation is to help us to let go of things. Practice of meditation, as I said, is for giving up and letting go, not for holding on and accumulating. So what are those things which are very difficult for people to let go of? In the end, when we look at the world from a point of view of the mind, when we start to see that really all that's real is the mind and everything it experiences, all of its experiences, then all of these things are really useless. But it's very easy to intellectualize and say that we know that these things are all useless. It's a completely different thing to actually give them all up because of our likes, our addictions because of our built-up, accumulated desire for these things. The first one is our, our, our home. This is something which people have a very difficult time giving up. The second one is our, our supporters people who support or take care of us. This is something which is very hard to give up. The third one is our, our gains, our money and our, our treasure, our, our wealth. Wealth is something that is very difficult for people to give up. The fourth is our friends, 
our group, our, uh, our social network. The fifth is our work. Number six is travel. Some people have, most people have a very difficult time when they're not able to go here, go there. Number seven is our relatives. Uh, number eight is our sickness, sicknesses, our health. It's very difficult for people who are sick to be able to let go of these things. Number nine is our learning. And number ten is our mental, mental abilities, our mind powers mind powers, mental fortitude and so on. These ten things are very difficult for people to let go of in the world. And actually they shouldn't be, but uh, if we don't talk about them and if we don't start to analyze and to go over them again and again and be very mindful of our attachment again and again to these things, they can be very difficult for us to give up. Our first one is our home. People think that somehow you need to have a big home, you need to have this. Nowadays it's such a big deal, no? Everybody has to have a home. And look at nowadays what the home crisis has done. This need for a home. There was a time in America where not having a home was considered to be uh, hip, was considered to be a great thing, wandering. I think nowadays you probably still find someone, some people doing it. There's a story, if you know the story of uh, Thoreau, he was a man who went off into the woods and built his own house for, for almost nothing. And he remarked that most people spend most of their lives simply acquiring a home. And they don't ever become the owners of any, any home until until they're very old, if ever. And so they live slaves to banks and to uh, businesses because try, trying to pay for their extravagant homes. And Thoreau said, he said, these people could never compare with uh, a groundhog or a rat 
which digs its home and is just fine with a hole in the in the side of a hill or looking at the the Indian people the First Nations people we call them the American Indians you know you know in the time when they had teepees or so on how much does a teepee cost how many years do you have to pay back a teepee you know? Anybody ever take out a teepee loan? Mortgage your teepee? Nowadays it's very difficult. I think a lot of the problem here is not that people didn't have homes and had to Part of the problem in America, I guess, is that people wanted better homes, no? bigger homes. You see a lot of people in America resorting to these mobile homes, which I think is really a great thing. I think it's a great thing for a spiritual person to own nothing more than a, a mobile home. Because you see these big houses and you ask yourself, oh... Now, who's going to take care of this? When I was in Thailand, right before I came to America, I think it's funny that there were rumors going around that I, was, I had stole like a million baht or something. I was hiding it. If you saw where I was living, you'd laugh. I wonder where I was hiding the money. <laughs> the floor is made of dirt. The walls were made of straw. The bed was... a bunch of wooden planks didn't even have a mattress to hide the money under and it's great because you don't have to sweep you don't have to wash you can't really have dinner parties but that's not a problem for monks the homeless life is something very special uh, <coughs> I don't suppose that everyone here is going to leap at the opportunity to become homeless. But it's funny how we uh, we find this such an attractive thing to have a home. And what it does is we're always it makes us always worry about our home. We're always worried and concerned and always having to take care and the people who come here to practice, but it's funny really to think, you know, I mean, it seems so normal, but kind of as a monk, I suppose I have to laugh inside. When people come and tell me they have to go back and check on their home, like as though it were a child or something. But it's true, they have to. I think it's great. It's a great suffering for people to find out that they're going to become homeless. I think this is uh, clearly something which people. Yeah, how many people could really dare to become homeless? No. Our home is a great security for us—a false sense of security, like as though somehow death couldn't get through the alarm system or something. 
We live in our houses, you know. We don't really live in the world anymore. Not in olden days or in even in Thailand, some places in rural Thailand where they live. They live in the barest huts and then they, they're all living in a communal area. We don't even see our neighbors, the people right next door, we don't really even know them. This is, I think, dangerous, a dangerous trend, you know, in modern society. We don't live in the world anymore, the world, and as a result, our, how's the world becoming you know, hotter? We've, we're afraid to go outside because we're getting skin cancer, pollution, you can't go for a run, don't you dare go for a walk. You get lung cancer. It's funny that it's exactly our our inability to 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 bear these things that's making the world worse and worse. Because as we can't bear with heat, we have to turn on air conditioning, or air purification, or so on. As we can't bear to live in the world, we have to build these shells, which cause incredible amount of money and resources. We can't bear to walk anywhere, so we have these cars. Americans are kind of funny in this way. I don't think it's so so big a deal in Canada, but I suppose Canada, Canadians are guilty of it as well. But Americans really like their cars. And you got you've got this carpool lane, and it's 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 amazing to me, coming from Thailand. If anyone's been to India then you, you, you should laugh out loud at America. Because in India, you have these little minibuses that could seat maybe, say, maximum 10, mm, I think even less, 10, 12 people maybe. And there's about 50 people on the thing. No, I literally on the thing. If you've ever been to India, you know what I'm talking about. They're all over the roof, the walls. It's like... Like you can't, you, you can't believe if you're from America. You can't believe that these people can actually do that. And in America, they have these carpool lanes, and there's maybe one or two cars. And you're wondering, well, why don't people use the carpool lanes? You look around, and they're all one person per car. Oh, it's amazing, really. Thailand is really, is really fairly moderate, not compared to India. India is incredible. But even in Thailand, you see three, four people on a motorbike. <laughs> Americans would laugh out loud. We'd, we'd yell at them if they did that. It's against the law here. I bet. You got the kids standing, standing at the front. And the baby, the toddler standing in the front, and the mother, and the young, the older kid, and then the father at the back driving, and so on. And they're on a motorbike. I mean, they're, they're saving gas. This is how they save gas. And here we're... Anyway, this all has to do with our... Uh, this is an incredible attachment to our shells. People have attachment to their homes. You know, so happy to get back home and sort of forget about all the suffering that exists in the world. I think in the end it is, um, I'm not going to be so arrogant as to assume that most people should become homeless, but uh, <coughs> it is interesting that 
we have to see this see the world from a physical point of view and find our security outside the home is something very different it's very difficult to be become homeless to become a monk or a nun or so on something that's very difficult to give up you always want to go home this is the first one the second one is our supporters I think this is more directed towards monks, but sometimes we have a good support group and so on. Uh, for instance, our parents are supporting us. This is always, when, when you become a monk, it's always something you go back to. When everything goes bad and no one loves you, you still always think, I want my mom, <laughs> I want my dad. And you think about calling your parents and then you say, no, that don't be stupid. They're just going to tell you to disrobe. <laughs> but I suppose parents are, are a very good example for everyone that we, um, we often depend on our parents a lot until we get to a certain age or until our parents pass away or so on. Then when our parents pass away, we generally find other people to support us. It can be our husband or our wife, people who support us emotionally. It becomes a real crutch, no? And we can't, we can't easily stand on our own when we have, we have these people. And you can only see it's a crutch when, crutch when they pass away. When they pass away, we find ourselves feeling very lost, something that we're very, we can very easily attach to. Something that it's not easy to, it's not easy to find someone who can stand on their own two feet. Monks are a very good example. Many monks become very much attached to their supporters. Become attached to people who have great faith in them or so on. It's very hard for them to let go and to move on or to uh, give up. And it's very easy to become lazy and to forget about all of the work that we have to do to clean up our acts, make ourselves better people and so on. You don't have to make yourself a better person if everything's comfortable, no? It is possible to be comfortable as a very bad, evil person even for some time and what does it take? It takes things like this you need a good home and a good security system and you need a good uh, support group and even the mafia, no? they get by fairly well but all of us are guilty as well and we, we have all these crutches that we fall back on some people they can't even come to practice because <laughs> they're so attached to their home no? I think we've had a few people like that who had to get over this, get over their attachment to their homes. Some people even to the point where they want to come and practice and then go home and sleep at home or so on. They can't sleep anywhere else. What a very strong attachment, no? It's amazing how the mind can hold on so strong. And you think about it, when what a, what's such a meaningless thing in the face of eternity, in the face of the samsara that we live in? 
We all have to die. We all have to get old. What are we? What are we doing? Holding on like miserable creatures. The Hindus love this because they say you are God. Buddhists don't don't generally get so arrogant or self self conceited. But I'm not. I think it is a little bit of conceit to say that you're God. I am God. You are God. But they get around it. The Hindus are. You know they have their own understanding. Buddhists, we don't say that. But I think you could. I think you could say, I am God, even as a Buddhist. And like, what are you doing clinging to the side of the wall there? Jump, fly. You've got wings, fly. Let go. You're God. What does it mean you're God? You are the creator. We are the ones who create the world. There's nobody else creating it for us. There's no magic uh, genie or God or so on doing everything for us. We are the ones who are creating the world. We are the ones who are destroying the world. We are the creator. We are the destroyer. We can be whatever we want, give time, give it time, we can become a very good person, we can become a very bad person. And if we hold on to such silly things. The third one is our wealth, holding on to our wealth. It's funny you hear about people who have burglaries, no? Keep keeping all these things, keeping all these valuable things locked up in a safe. You know, it has no bearing on their life. These these things have no bearing on their life, and yet when they're gone, they're, they lived fine before they were gone. Without using them, they never used them when they were when they were still there, and yet when they're gone, well. You know, they weren't using them before. When they're gone, they're crying and upset. And all of this wealth is meaningless in the end. You say, I've got all this wealth, and so I can, that's power, I can get all of these things. It's not power. So you get things. In the end, all you get is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, and thinking. You didn't have that before? Is it possible to get something that is outside of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, and thinking? It's not possible. And yet we create all of these imaginary things, like somehow uh, an, an iPhone adds a new sense door or something, or so on. A new car gives us a new dimension or something. It's just seeing you have this beautiful car or this ugly car. In fact, I like the American people for another for one thing. Some American some Americans are so you know unconcerned about their vehicles. You know, it can be all smashed up and fenders falling off and just drive in. This is nice. Nice to see. People who are not concerned.
And some people are so con- I think a lot of the problem with uh, with society is I think well maybe in many cases anyway it's not so much that there's a recession or so on it's that people are, are so upset when they lose something we have to have this certain wealth is incredibly addictive you know people playing the stock markets and all these numbers start going through their head. Whoa, if it goes up this much, I get this much. If it goes up that much, if it just goes up a little more. People playing the real estate market. These numbers start ticking in the head. Oh, another. Now the price is this. Now the price is that. Buying, selling, buying, selling. It gets very addictive. But it's addictive for everybody. <clears throat> the main reason a lot of people can't become full-time meditators or so on is because they're afraid of the insecurity they're afraid of losing their security of having to give up money again they're afraid of falling where are you going to fall I mean, it's a mind in the end you know you're going to lose a sense because you, you don't have any money in the end, you're just still seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. I mean, this is living life. Most of us, we're, we're dying, you know. <laughs> it's the difference between living and dying. The Lord Buddha said, a person who is mindful never dies. A person who is unmindful is like they're already dead. Mindfulness is the path to the deathless. The mindful never die. Unmindfulness is the path to death. Those who are unmindful are already dead. Are just like someone who is dead already. And when we cling and we hold on, it's like we're not living. We're not. We're living like a. <coughs> Like a rat in a cage, they say, you know. We're not free. We, we put ourselves in these cages. No? So wealth is something which people attach to very strongly. Number four is our friends. Friends can be a very strong attachment, no? Easily. Easy to see. This one doesn't need any explanation. But when you become a meditator, you don't have to worry so much about this attachment because generally, well, often, anyway, I didn't have to. I didn't have to worry about it. Let's put it this way. When I became a meditator, this is one attachment I didn't have to worry about because I lost all my friends. <laughs> I mean all. I mean, there's not one person from my childhood who I can think back and say, oh, that person's still, you know, still we still keep in touch or so on. I think there's one person, but it's not very close. No, I don't think there's any. And it was all because I meditated. It was like they weren't interested, so that was that. 
But meditator friends are a whole different issue. Old friends are, before you meditate, your friends just drag you down in general. The more we associate with each other, the more we just fool around and get into bad things. Right? Because it's a support. You don't have to be a good person when your friends uh, accept you for who you are. This is what we say, a friend is someone who accepts you. For, well, what that means is they don't push you to become a better person. And they say, yeah, yeah, it's all right that you're a mean and nasty guy because so am I. You know, and we sit around and so on. I mean, as an example, I mean, at, at the very least, all of our <coughs> vices, all of our addictions and our vices, this is what our friends allow us and give us. So we sit around chatting and talking and joking and drinking and smoking and so on. But meditator friends are a whole, whole different. Meditator friends, the best friend for a meditator is someone who leaves you alone. I think this is not only a good thing to teach, but it's an important thing to press upon meditators. Nah, if you're going to be a good friend to your friend to your fellow meditators, leave them alone. Because the more you get caught up and involved with them, the, wor the more trouble you're going to create for their meditation. Meditators don't need anything. They don't need friends. They don't need encouragement. They just need time to themselves. And a teacher. Maybe you could say the best friend for a meditator is their teacher. And you should say this because this is what the Buddha said. This is what is said in the scriptures. He said, the best friend we can find is someone who teaches us. But that's fine because the teacher generally just sends you off to meditate. A meditation teacher is someone who, is, who knows better than to get caught up in, in meditators' affairs. Because they've been there already. For all of us, if we haven't been there already, we shouldn't try to get involved with meditators at all. We're meditating, they're meditating, we shouldn't interfere with their meditation at all. You don't say, oh, they, they look a little bit stressed out, let's go and, you know, chat it up for a bit. Thinking that somehow that's uh, going to help, help them out. I think the the worst thing though about about that we can do in regards to friends are the worst attachment we can have is attachment to bad friends. Sometimes we're attached to people just because we say, Well, he's my friend. But I mean looking at it from a practical point of view, if it's someone who pulls you, drags you down and drains your energy, I mean why, why are we so attached to the concept of friends? And isn't it a little bit of a delusion? That somehow friends are a good thing if that's all they do is drag you down and so on. That somehow there's a, this inherent virtue in being a friend and so on. I suppose we, 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 we give an excuse that they're loyal and we say if someone is loyal to you, you should never throw them away or never just 
give them up as a friend. And I, I don't mean that we should give up any of these things. I mean, we should not be attached to these things. And we should see these things clearly. If someone is clearly a drain on you, clearly dragging you down, then why should you want to, to, to do anything but try to pull them up and help them up? And when and if you can't help them up and pull them up, if it's not possible to make them a better person, then for what reason are you allowing them to drag you down? For what benefit? If it's not possible to help them to become uh, someone who helps themselves, someone who is beneficial to themselves and others, then what is the benefit of letting them drag you down? But in general, friendship can be a very strong attachment. And it's what, uh, what one of those things which leads to great suffering, no? When we lose a friend, I think it's hard for most people to see this. They see this great importance in friendship. But there's something much greater than friendship. There's something much greater than having friends. And I think that I think the best way to describe what that is is friendliness. Bring having friendliness is much better than having friends. When we are a person who is friendly, and this is what they mean by the word metta, the word metta simply means to be friendly. And what it means is being, being the same to everybody, having love for every being on earth. Not saying this person is my friend, this person's not my friend. There's a story, Ajahn Brahmavangso, I once heard a talk he gave, he said, he asked, who is the most important person in the world? And people tried to answer and they said, you know, you, you are the most, uh, you know, I am the most important person in the world for me. Uh, then they said, your mother, your father, the Buddha, they have all these answers. And he said, no, the most important person in the world is whoever you're with at the time. And there is something to that. I mean, I, I don't know, it, it, it's his teaching, but not only is the person, whoever person you're with is the most important, whatever is in front of you is the most important. The meaning there is there's no reason that we should see anyone as different from anyone else. When we see something in front of us, we should always think that we want to help them. I think this is a very natural thing. When your mind is harmonious, you can feel the disharmony in other people's minds. When you feel their disharmony, you don't have anything but the desire to uh, help them to settle down and to become more harmonious. And the more you, so the more you practice, the more you practice, all you have for people is send them off to meditate, send them off to practice. You know it's all that's going to make them happier, make them better. Not friendship with you or sitting around talking and so on. These things only give you a fleeting sense of enjoyment.
So I'm going on, this is number four. Number five is work. Some people become very attached to their work. So here we learn, we learn to give up work. These are workaholics, no? People have to have work. This is something that often gets in the way of meditation, work. Some people have one job, it's not enough, they take another job. Some people are retired. Well, when I'm retired, what am I going to do? So they go and get a job. Work. We have to be doing something all the time. Meditators come here and then, you know, well, what are they going to do? So they do some sweeping. And sweeping, while well, sweeping's finished, then there's still time. So then they do some mopping. And the mopping's finished, so now it's time to wash the whole wash, whole bathroom, scrub the bathroom. And then it's time to wash your clothes, and then time to have a shower in the morning, and then a shower in the afternoon, and then a shower at night. Uh, this is something that's very difficult, very difficult for us to not be busy. You know? People who come to do the meditation course, they find themselves itching to get back to the work thinking about their work, what they're going to do when they go back to work. People live for their work, some people, no? Live for something. We all live for, act, for acting, for doing. We get caught up in meaningless, pointless things. In fact, if you look at most of the work that we do in this world, it's, it's pointless and meaningless. <laughs> We're working for other people and often for things that are uh, not going to make them a better person. And we work and we work. And look at how much energy we put into this work. This is something that's very difficult to let go. It goes part and parcel with letting, not being able to let go of wealth. We think that if we have more money, if we just get a little more money, then we'll be happy. If we just get a little more of this, a little more of that, then we'll be happy. When we could be living very simple lives, living out of a motorhome, this is still think this is a great idea. Living out of a motorhome. There was a woman who, everyone knows the, old, the woman who used to live out of a van, probably still lives out of a van out somewhere. And she had, I think she had a little bit of mental problems, but I mean on the surface it's kind of a neat idea, living in a van. But you can go wherever you want, and work the odd job, Got a little bit of money, enough to eat, eat enough to live, maybe eat one meal, two meals a day. I think besides, apart from becoming a monk or a nun, I think that's probably a good second bet, is to just be homeless, wander. But it can't compare to becoming a monk, no? I'm just, just talking here, just talking about some of the things that we hold on to and in the end just trying to help to realize we're not who we think we are. You know, we think we've this is my name, this is my occupation, this is my education, uh, this is my status, this is my wealth, this is my uh, citizenship, this is this, this, this. And we've got this whole identity build up around nothing, around illusion. In the end we're, we're all the same. 
someone who has nothing is the same as someone who is um, rich and famous. In fact, often the one with nothing is much better off. They have much less to worry about. So helping, I mean, whatever level we're at, whatever ability we have to let go, this is, this is our chance now that we're human, born as human beings. You know, you're born as anything else and you don't have anything. You're born as an other animal. You don't see dogs or cats accumulating much. We we press it on them as well, you know, giving them this, giving them that, but they don't think about it. Look at us. We've been given this chance, born humans, where we can really cultivate these states of uh, strong uh, mental fortitude, mental ability, where we can purify our minds and make ourselves very, very incredible beings, and yet we're. We're worse off than the animals. We're, look at them, they're free to do what they want. We've got all these worries and cares and bills and so on. Helping to let go of some of these things I think is a good thing. So we're at five now, no? Number six, travel. Now contrary to popular opinion, being homeless is not just about traveling. And it's important to stay put. It's important to try to stay put actually as much as you can. That when you travel, it shouldn't be like a hobby or a vacation that you're traveling. Traveling is to get from point A to point B. Traveling is not to see this or see that. It's funny in Thailand, it's very funny. You watch all these foreigners, and I used to be one of them, you know. Everyone else does it, so you do it. They're all taking pictures. So you, what are the pictures for? So we can dump more chemicals down the sink and into the oceans. I mean, so we can send more pictures back home and say, hi, look, here's me in Thailand. Big deal. My teacher, he said, oh, I feel so sorry for all of these foreigners who come to Thailand, all they do is look and look and look. And they have no end to just looking and looking and seeing and seeing. And they never think to look inside. You know, just looking outside at things around them. They never get enough. It's not nearly as real as we think, and yet people can be so... Most of these things, I think, if people, if you weren't meditating, you'd probably, probably, maybe there's even people here, I don't know. You'd probably think I'm crazy or, or think I'm, you know, a little, I'm going too far with all of this. I don't think I'm going, I don't think you can go too far in letting go. And the Bodhisattva, the, the Bodhisattva he gave, he, he let go of his wife, he let go of his children. He let go of all of his possessions, everything. Anybody came and asked him for anything, he just said, I relinquish. Relinquish my hold on these things. Everything, even his life. Because he knew things that we don't know. We don't know. We think, oh, this is it. When I die, that's it. Well, if it's it, then it's it. Why are we so clinging? 
<coughs> we think we think that somehow all we've got is all of these things and it's such a miserable sort of existence that really if that's it man it's kind of belittles the magnificence of 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 the whole of reality to say that all we've got is about 70 80 years of of drudgery and that's the universe that's reality so I think a little bit simplistic and completely off base because it's very physical and we know from meditation for ourselves we can see clearly that the universe is not a physical thing the universe is based on the mind And so many people, for, even for this, for traveling, people are very you know, keen to see new places. And they say, well, you get to learn new cultures and you get to broaden your horizons and so on. Eh. In the end, their salt is salty, our salt is salty. You don't have to go to Thailand to know that salt is salty. In the end, people are people. Lao Tzu said, he said, uh, and I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember. He said something like, the, why, the, the, the great being knows the whole world and never leaves the, never leaves the cart. Means when they travel, they never, they never leave the vehicle. When they go somewhere, they don't get out and take pictures and, and look around and sightsee and everything. When they travel, they, they don't need to see anything. They already know all the people. They already know everything about the people. This is the great thing about being a meditator and a meditation teacher. It's very easy to teach new meditators. You don't have to learn anything about them. You know everything about them. They're just like everybody else. You know exactly what's going on with them. There's nothing mysterious about people. There's nothing mysterious about beings. A mosquito has the same defilements as a human being it's the same uh, obsession so this is an easy one to get attached to something difficult for meditators to give up worrying about going here going there so number seven is relatives relatives are very difficult to give up just like friends. I don't think I have to go into detail here. We're talking about many of the same things. But I think relatives are on a whole other level from friends. Relatives often we we feel an obligation to to associate and to get involved and to communicate and to keep in touch with them. My younger brother said this to me, young, my youngest brother, he said that he felt bad that he wasn't able to, when we were growing up, wasn't able to spend much time with me and we never really got to know each other. And he said he was hoping that we'd have time to spend and so on. And I, I don't know, I think I was a little bit cruel, but I said to him, I said, I think we live in very different worlds here. And I, I said to him, I said, if you ask, if you want my advice, I think... You should look at the people around you and consider them to be your family. Consider yourself to be related to the whole the whole human race because we are. 
in the end everybody is your is a relative there's no in and in an inner group outer group I think we the Jewish people are a little bit uh, we go a little bit far in this whole inner outer thing and uh, not just Jewish people I think many many societies many cultures are very very strong in this family thing and they give preference to their relatives and so on and it's really ridiculous there's nothing about this person or that person that says you're there, your relative any more than anybody else they're just closer okay closer but it's closer in what way closer in terms of the body because the body was had was cause and causally related but the mind can be on a whole different plane because the mind just clings to the body it doesn't rely on the body doesn't mean I'm born in this body I, my mind is going to be like this I'm born in that body my mind is going to be like that there's so many different you can be completely different from your relatives it's very easy And it's, it's the same as with friendships, is that it, it's dangerous. Because then it, our, it defines our peer group, our social group, on very arbitrary terms. You know, we're not associating with these people because they're wonderful people. We're associating them because what? Because uh, our, our DNA is similar or so on. because there's something very physical which is in the end fairly meaningless I think the exception of course is our mother and our father and we have to understand why it is that the Buddha plays such importance on mother and father and this is because not because we're related to them but because of the things which they have done for us in giving birth to us and in caring for us Mother and father are a very important thing. It's important to understand clearly how we should relate to our parents. We should never be angry with them. We should never speak, speak or act in a way that will hurt them intentionally. We should always think only to find some way to make them happier, to make them uh, more peaceful. We should never act in a way that's going to make them less peaceful or less happy. Except when we want to become a monk. <laughs> that can really shake them up. No, I want to talk about this because I think people might then criticize me because I really, even in a way you could say I hurt my parents by becoming a monk. But this is, as with so many different things, you have to be very careful when you develop your views and your opinions. Because I've heard so many people that give this same excuse that they don't want to, you know, they, they don't think, they think it would upset their parents if they became a monk, or their parents want them to become rich, or get an education, or have a good job, or so on, or have some security. And so they're doing it for their parents. This is why they're not becoming a monk, and so on. And I think we have to be very careful about this because clearly those things are not going to help our parents become happier or more peaceful. 
We all know what makes people happier and more peaceful, and it's things like meditation. It's things like morality. And the only, the only way we can really help our parents and make them happier and more peaceful is if they come to realize the things which are causing them suffering, if they come to see clearly these things. And if we always do what they want and follow after their wishes, they're never going to see these things. They're always going to have this false sense of security in, in, in the things which are insecure and their stresses and their worries and their doubts and their angers and their frustrations are all their addictions are all going to grow and grow and grow I think it's the best thing it's not I think it's very clear that the best thing one can do for one's parents is to become a monk or a nun to become a meditator let's not say monk or nun med, a full time meditator to become a meditation teacher to become a monk to become a nun to become someone who uh, dedicates their life to only following after good things. Because you're giving them such a resource, such a tool that they can then use whenever they want. And they're so close to you that they can follow you at any time. And if they want to keep in touch with you, they have to follow you. I have one example of someone who was, we were talking about this and he was worried that his, his, his mother wouldn't be, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be able to meditate because he was coming to meditate. But as it turns out, she's coming to meditate as well, to do the full course. We have to be very careful how we presuppose things. We're much better off to wait and to see how reality works. Reality never works in contrary to how, how we see things in meditation. When we know what is right, we should never listen to someone else when they try to persuade us to do otherwise. Not only for our own benefit, but for their benefit as well. And reality works this way. When we do good things, we only get good results. We don't get bad results from good deeds. It's not possible. It's not possible at all. We should never doubt these things. I doubted these for a long time before I became a monk, thinking that I had to please my parents, until finally I said I was crazy. I wasn't getting anywhere. My parents weren't, were just getting older. That's when I finally started to really take seriously what I was doing, what I knew was right. That's when they started to change and they started to open up. I think most of you will meet my mother when, if you haven't met her yet, you'll meet my mother when she comes. She'll be here on the 6th. She's coming to stay in the monastery, which I think is a wonderful, uh, wonderful thing. Wonderful improvement, I suppose. Uh, this is number 7, no? <coughs> Relatives. You should be very careful. Uh, about our about how you know this is we get attached to our parents even have to do what they say and so on you don't have to do what they say sometimes kids know, children know better than their parents it's possible especially when it comes to themselves some most often kids not most often it's not true. it can happen 
that kids know better than their parents. Because parents can obsess very much about their children. It can be very irrational. I suppose it's true. Often kids don't know. Parents do know better. But it can very easily happen that kids know better because parents become obsessive. You know, how many parents, they destroy their children by worrying and stressing and, you know, forcing this and that on them. It's not fair to say that parents know best for their children. Parents, they may know, but they, they're unable to communicate to their children. And through their stress and their worry and their fear, they can destroy their children, give them neuroses and addictions and obsessions and all sorts of mental sicknesses can come because parents are unable to let go of their children. Children are unable to let go of their parents. And the Buddha gave a nice talk on this. He said, there are many things which, which part parents and children. Uh, things like fire and flood and so on. These things might and might not. Sometimes there's a fire and they get separated. Sometimes there's a flood and they get separated. Sometimes they don't get separated. But he said there are things which definitely separate parents and children is old age, sickness and death. And he said the way out of it is to realize this, is to realize... Uh, the impermanence of life and to realize that we're not really son and daughter and mother and father. And when we realize that, we never get separated from them. We realize that it's all in the mind. And we're free from this idea of separation. We realize it's just a universe of people. And if we don't finish it in this life, then we'll meet each other in the next life. So... Attachment to relatives, I think, is important to understand. The number eight is sickness. Sickness is... Uh, uh, how many of us can say we're free from worrying about sickness? Well, we all want to be healthy, you know? It can be a real attachment. And we have these health kicks. You know, people talk you're on a health kick. I think it's easy to get too obsessed. I think I might even be guilty of it sometimes. Worrying about you know, food. My teacher, he's, I think he's got diabetes because they gave him all sorts of sweet food and he wasn't worried, he just ate and ate and ate whatever they gave him. So I've always been kind of careful, but I wonder, you know, is that an attachment? I think it is. But we can, we can rationalize this one. And I don't know whether it's simply a rationalization or if it's I think there is something in the Buddha's teaching about being careful about what you eat. For instance, being careful about your health. Because it would be a real bummer if you got some debilitating disease that uh, made it difficult for you to do walking meditation, for instance, or live in the forest, or so on. Or a sickness which shortened your life. Because we all figure that the longer the life, the better, no? more time to develop ourselves, more time to do good things. But it's very dangerous. If, if all you're doing is you know, worrying about your health, then it's, it's hard to say that your life is worth anything at all. If all you're doing is worrying and you know, stressing about your health, 
People who have sicknesses, I think, can be even worse. They feel like when they're sick, then they can't meditate. They have to go see the doctor and find a cure right away. Actually, sickness can be a great meditation tool. We should be careful about this one. If it comes to our general health and getting sicknesses like diabetes, I think there's case for avoiding certain foods or so on. But when it comes to get catching a cold, when we have a cold, everyone's all, you need to take this, you need to take that. And really it's a shame because you can learn so much from getting a cold or a flu or a... Uh, uh, back as what do you call um, stomach upset stomach getting back uh, dysent dysentery I don't know exactly what is meant by dysentery but I think I had it a couple of times a few times twice in India once in Thailand to the point where I couldn't even couldn't even walk it's just the whole body is aching you feel like you're going to die. But it's a great learning experience. When you come out of it, you feel wonderful. If you're mindful. Oh, if you're mindful, it's just like, wow. It's like a whole university course. It's like a special education course. Sickness 101. Great learning experience. If anyone, if you remember, please remember this when you're sick. Considered a special teacher for you, special education, because you're not going to die. I mean, what's the big deal? If you work, you get days off. Well, they give you sick days, don't they? You stay at home and just meditate, lie there, watching the pain and the suffering. It's great. You don't have any commitments. You just got meditation. I think sickness, we, we have to be careful because there's so many people that are just taking medicine just for, for pain, no? painkillers. People, when they die, they have to take these uh, medication. No? You have to die, you want to be medicated because you can't take the pain. Oh, what a terrible thing. That's the worst. If you're going to take medication now, okay, not such a bad thing. If you're going to take medication at the moment of death, you're in for big trouble because what? The moment when you die is the most important thing, the most important moment. It's the moment when your whole life flashes before your eyes. No? This is true. It's like you got this whole thing you can choose from, and if you choose carefully, you get, you get a good life. You know, you go on to a good place. If you're not careful, if your mind is all drunk and in a stupor, that's where cows come from. Buffalo. Moo. <laughs> we have to be careful about sickness. Not to become not to become so lost in it. I mean, it's sad, you know. If we could just teach meditation to people who are dying, we have we don't have this opportunity. But if there were the opportunity to go into hospitals or hospices and teach people meditation like uh, Esther's sister. I always use that as an example. Uh, we went in and just a brief moment, she was wanted to take some medication. She 
She was feeling pain, and I said, okay, just try to watch the pain instead. And she didn't want to, but she tried. And so I said, pain, pain, pain. This terrible pain. She was dying of cancer. And then after saying pain, pain, and leading her through it, she fell asleep. She didn't have to take the medicine. She did take it eventually. I mean, there wasn't, it wasn't that much of a... But I think it was a, it was a clear sign that this, this works. It's not difficult. If people just knew this very basic technique, very easy to do. It's amazing how much trouble we have teaching this, no? People come here and they want to fight with me and say, why do we have to say pain, pain, pain? I know it's pain. Why? Why are we fighting? Why is it so difficult to teach such an easy, simple technique? It's amazing how thick our views are, you know, how thick our delusion is. I always tell people, just, just be stupid, okay? <laughs> just come to me and be stupid and do whatever I say. That's better. It's easier. We've got so much, such thick, uh, so many attachments, no? This is why it's very difficult to teach. But it's very clear. I mean, this is why we've got so many people now. It's because, you know, well, I have to see the results before I come. And then they see everyone else saying how great it is because they took the plunge. And I had to fight with them and I fought with them. And finally they came through. And when they came through, they said, wow, it's really good. It's like green eggs and ham. <laughs> so I had to fight with a guy to eat the green eggs and ham. Well, it's just green. I mean, there's no problem. Green, I don't want green eggs and ham. When he eats it, he's like, whoa, it's really good. And this is why now we have so many, it's just going to, this is just going to explode, I think. We have to have more and more people coming. Because it's really good. It really works. It's not fake. We're not deluding ourselves. People come in here and you can see they've got all sorts of attachment. They come out and they're just like normal. Like we're making, nor making people normal. And their space is so clear and they talk so rational and they're no longer full of suspicion and doubt and you know, stress. You can see it in their faces when they leave. Okay, anyway, talking about sickness, no? Number nine is study. Study is difficult for Buddhists. Many Buddhists like to study a lot. People like to read and read and read and read and like to think and think and think and think. We like to talk and talk and talk and talk. And it gets us nowhere. Again, as I said, meditators have to be dumb. Not too dumb. I mean, there's some, some, some leeway for being smart. But we have to, when we... Because when we take, undertake meditation, it's a whole different kind of wisdom. It's not wisdom in the English sense of the word. It's knowing. Knowing clearly. Knowing thoroughly. Knowing perfectly. But knowing really really knowing not just knowing in an intellectual sense that's not really knowing panya means basically means really knowing or knowing really knowing truly this is why it's actually it's actually wisdom you know we don't realize that it's when we just say rising or falling when we catch something for what it is it's actually wisdom it's actually panya in the in the buddhist sense of the word 
This is, I think, hard for people to grasp. We think that's stupid. If that's wisdom, this is useless. And it's sad that people just can't see the benefit of just that. It's sad that we can't see the benefit of just knowing the rising, knowing the falling of the abdomen. It's sad that we can't see that the three characteristics of impermanent suffering and non-self are right there. It's nothing intellectual at all. That the path to freedom is there. That Nibbana is right there. Freedom from suffering is right there. Just saying rising, falling, rising, falling. Everything comes clear. We don't have to think at all. People are so attached to reading and studying and talks. Everyone wants to come and hear these talks. And I'm all, oh, today, what am I going to talk about? I have to find something else to talk about. When I took my practice, we had no talks. Once a day with the teacher, back to practice. That's it. <laughs> In your room. Two meals a day. The meals we talked. We talked, oh, we talked. And we got in trouble. Yeah, we got in trouble. And we ruined each other's practice. Definitely ruined each other's practice. My my foundation course was not very fruitful. <laughs> I ended up running off through the rice field, crying. It's tough. But so um, okay, yeah. There is there is benefit to giving talks. There is benefit to studying. And this is why we give these talks. I'm not I'm not against giving talks. I think sometimes we put too much emphasis on the talks because it's easy to just listen, or we think it is. We think somehow it's nicer to listen than to actually be mindful. We have to be careful. Actually, being mindful is a wonderful thing. It's very easy when you're mindful. There's nothing difficult about being mindful. It's just rising, falling. We're the ones that are difficult. People say walking meditation is so boring or so uh, hard to endure and so on. There's nothing hard to endure about walking meditation. It's wonderful. The problem is we're not really meditating. Our minds are everywhere. We're not very good at it, let's put it that way. We have to work hard. Work hard just to, to do something that's very easy. You know? We're used to everything being so difficult. We're used to everything being so complicated. That's it. The mind is too... Our mind is, is not built for such a simple, pure uh, activity. And we have to put aside our learning when we practice meditation. We shouldn't think that somehow learning is going to make us enlightened. We have to put it in its place. Most learning, actually, in terms of meditation, is much more useful for a teacher and as soon as you become a teacher, you have to do a lot of learning. You have to do a lot of studying. But for a meditator, you don't have to study anything. You learn a little bit about how to be mindful, what are the four foundations of mindfulness, how to do walking, how to do sitting. That's it. Come to see the teacher every day. Listen to the teacher's advice. That's it. You don't have to study the Tipitika. You don't have to... Mm, get a master's degree in Buddhism or so on. It's a whole different issue. Some people just like to listen to the Dhamma all the time. You listen to these talks, but you have to be careful because you listen to this teacher, he says one thing, you listen to that teacher, she says another thing. And in the end, it's it's like 
getting directions to to the same place from all different locations. So when I'm over here and I tell you to go this way and he's over here and he tells you to go that way, now how is it how is it useful to you? It, it's not comparable to you yourself you know, when you're with a teacher who can tell you, oh, so you go this way, where they know where you are. It's easy for a, teachers give talks. They give talks often based on the circumstances at the time. You have to be very careful not to uh, not to use as a substitute listening to the Dhamma or reading the Dhamma. Even the Buddha, if you read the whole Tipitaka, you think, oh, yeah, that's very important for being a meditator. But the truth about the Tipitaka is it's talks that the Buddha gave on occasions to specific individuals. And unless you're learning how to teach people, it's not very useful as a meditator to read the whole thing. You know, it can be useful if you don't have a teacher, I suppose. It's the only alternative is to, you know, what did the Buddha say to this guy, that guy? Well, I can relate to that and sort of putting it all together into your mishmash of your practice. But it's nothing compared to having a teacher who's read all these things and can put it together for you. Because we can't easily see our own defilements. Anyway, this is number nine. Number ten, the last one for tonight is mental power, mental fortitude. This is a common one for past meditators. People who can't give up uh, states of peace and calm. People who can't give up their special experiences. Being able to talk to birds or so on. Meditators, she can talk to birds. No, not talk, listen to birds, hear what birds are saying, and she knows what they're saying. <laughs> well, is that really part of meditation? I mean, it's neat. I think it's really cool, actually. But you see how it can be such an attachment, no? You have to be very careful. Uh, careful about mental state, mind states as well. We get into meditation, and suddenly the mind is uh, quiet. And we don't know what to do. We don't want to do anything, actually. I mean, deep down we like it, and we think, you know, this is this is where it's at. But up on top we say, oh, I don't know what to do. I can't acknowledge anymore. Meditation just disappeared. Okay, I guess I better just enjoy it. <laughs> enjoy the peaceful uh, sensation. Well, the truth is we're, we're attached to it. There's a liking there. A very subtle sort of liking. It's called nikhanti. It's one of the ten vipassanupakilesa. So when we feel peace, we also have to say to ourselves, peaceful, peaceful, calm, calm. We're quiet, we say to ourselves, quiet, quiet. Don't delude yourself into thinking it's something special. There's nothing in this universe that can escape the three characteristics. There's nothing you can possibly experience in this universe. We're not talking about... The only exception, of course, is Nibbana, or freedom. That's the only thing outside of the universe. What we mean by the universe is everything except Nibbana, Nirvana. There's nothing except for Nirvana which escapes the three characteristics. And Nirvana only escapes two of them. It doesn't escape the non-self one. But it does escape the impermanence one and the suffering one. There's nothing else in this universe that can escape impermanent suffering and non-self. 
So whatever special experience we get in meditation, it's not really special. This is a, I, I had fun with uh, one student. She, kno she knows who she is. All telling me all about these wonderful experiences. I say, oh yeah, you saw that? So you say, seeing, seeing. Having, oh, and then I went here and there. Oh yes, you say, seeing, seeing. Oh, and I heard this and that. Oh yeah. So hearing, hearing. In the end, no matter what special experience, this is what has to be impressed upon the meditator. It's not special. It's only seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, or thinking. It doesn't escape these six. It doesn't escape the three characteristics. It doesn't escape impermanence. It doesn't escape suffering. It doesn't escape non-self. doesn't escape impermanence means it's impermanent. It doesn't escape suffering means it can't satisfy you. Because it's impermanent and unstable. And it doesn't escape non-self because you can't control it. You can't force it to come whenever you want and go whenever you want. So even magical powers, the ability to read people's minds or read birds' minds or see through your ears. Uh, all sorts of funny things I've heard. All sorts of visions that we have. In the end, they're only impermanent suffering and non-self. They'll never be permanent. They'll never be satisfying. And if we're not through with these things, we'll never be fully and truly at peace. So these ten things are things which people find difficult to let go. I think are very difficult for people in this world to let go. And with good reason. I think everyone would say, yeah, I mean, that really makes up who I am. And that, in from a, medita from a meditator's point of view, that is the problem. This I am thing. I don't, I don't expect that everyone is able to give up all of these things, but there's no other way. I suppose it's kind of a, a hard pill to swallow, but in the end, you know, to the extent that we hold on to these things, to that extent we're still bound to samsara. And so I guess I'm giving you the whole full scope of what it is that we, we're, we're doing here. You know, it's not just something you can practice on the weekend and then go home and say, yeah, well, back to work. It doesn't work that way. It, it works that way in the beginning, but you find what happens is you end up quitting your job and shaving your head <laughs> and so on. I mean, it sort of works in stages. But in the end, there's, there's, there's no end except death. In the end, we all die. So all of these things, you can see, they're only concerned with this life. They're not concerned with uh, our spiritual life, our spiritual journey. They're not concerned with freedom from suffering. They're not concerned with reality, really. They're these delusion, these illusions that we hold on to. And even as meditators, we, we get caught up in this trap so easily caught up in the traps of these things very easily so it's important sometimes to shake it up I don't know I think maybe some people are probably still think I'm a little bit a little bit crazy or extreme or so on I don't mind I think I'm pretty extreme do it or don't do it but I mean in the end it is fairly extreme the extremes which the Lord Buddha taught, taught against were were not this extreme the extreme of letting go of everything the Lord Buddha said, nothing in the world is worth holding on to. 
There's no Dhamma, including Nibbana, which is worth clinging to. Sapi, Dhamma, all Dhammas. Nalang indeed are not. Abhiwene Saya, worth holding on to, worth clinging to. So that's the Dhamma for tonight. I hope it's been at least, the very least, interesting. Uh, I mean, actually, I hope it's very helpful. If it wasn't helpful, well, let it at least be interesting. But with any luck, it was helpful for some people and will be helpful for some people to help them to practice and to find true and complete freedom from suffering in the future. I hope that some of you actually do become fully, at least some of you, I hope all of you, but I mean, I think it would be great if some of some people here actually do become fully, truly free from suffering in this life. I think it would be uh, very much worth it to give these talks. I'm very happy to give these talks, and I thank you all for listening. And I hope you all are able to, if not in this life, then in the lives to come, able to find true and complete freedom from suffering. Uh, and that may you all... Uh, develop and progress well in your practice. Thank you for listening. Have a good night. <laughs>